Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com Hi everyone, welcome to Downstairs History. This week, 80 years ago, it was all happening. The Dunkirk evacuation was in full swing. The so-called miracle of Dunkirk, when British naval vessels and small ships from all across southern and eastern England gathered to lift an entrapped British and French army off the North French coast around the port of Dunkirk. There was all this week we've been running podcasts about it. We've had Josh Levine talking about Dunkirk. He was the historical advisor to the recent Christopher Nolan film. We've had Guy Bowman talking about a group of Indian Muslim soldiers who found themselves caught up in the evacuation. And today we're going to reprise an old episode from a couple of years ago on this podcast when I accepted the invitation of the wonderful Ian Gilbert, who is in charge of the Little Ships Association. He's one of the key people keeping the memory of Dunkirk alive and keeping the ships that took part in that evacuation, keeping them afloat and with good owners and in good condition. I accepted an invitation. I went down to the River Thames at Windsor and we went for a little trip on some of the little ships. And I met some veterans as well. I met Edward Oates, who you're going to hear from, William Matthews, Stanley Chapel, Arthur Taylor. Sadly, William and Arthur are now deceased. It was only a couple of years ago that I was lucky enough to meet them and hear their stories. In this episode, you'll hear from all of those people. You'll hear memories of what it was like on the beach and what it was like coming back in the little ships 80 years ago. Sadly, every five years, all the little ships that are still able to go back to Dunkirk. And I've made that journey twice with them now. We're meant to do it again this year, but it's been rescheduled for next year. History Hit will be there. We'll be filming. We'll be podcasting. We'll be live streaming. We'll be on drones. We'll be doing the whole thing. So look forward to doing that. If you like listening to these back episodes of the podcast, they're only available on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. There's hundreds of documentaries, but there's also lots of back episodes of the podcast exclusively available there. We really appreciate your support. It's what keeps us all going. You guys are subscribing to History Hit and you're making it possible for us to go on making all this content and we're getting better and more ambitious all the time. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and then you get one month for just one pound, euro or dollar. We've got a new film up about Dunkirk. We've got a film about the fall of France coming. We've got stuff about the Titanic coming and about global pandemics. We're in full flow, even though we're operating under lockdown conditions. But thank you to everyone for your support. Enjoy this episode about the little ships and the men they rescued. I'm so lucky to be sat here now. I think it's fantastic to see this lovely smiling Berkshire countryside with the, the Thames so placid and the cerulean sky. 
I'm so so lucky. Did you think you'd be you'd be seeing this ever again when you were on the beaches of Dunkirk back in 1940? Uh, there are many occasions in the first world war, in the second world war, when I didn't think I might live the next second, let alone. 10 years or 20 years or 30 years I thought it was highly likely not to live very long I've seen the bombs coming down like pebbles out of the sky from Stukas diving on us and the next second I thought this one's coming and then it would veer off and my mouth would be full of full of uh, um, tingling sensation by the enzymes that were floating around my body and uh, I really thought I wasn't going to live very long and that has been replicated on many occasions in that war so I'm so so lucky so lucky when so many of my friends didn't make it. And uh, How did you come to be in Dunkirk? Did you have to walk back there? My battery, El Neri battery, was supporting the 3rd Division of Brigadier Montgomery, who later, uh, who later led the first battle of the Second World War for us to win. Uh, at uh, uh, and uh, uh, we retreated and I remember looking up into the sky and seeing the whole German Air Force the Luftwaffe thousands and thousands of planes droning on and they, they were so lucky not to pay us any, atten- any attention they were going off to bomb Dunkirk and the, the 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 ports, the French ports, and so we retre- retreated. Yes, and uh, we um, to cut a long story short, very very short, we finished up on a hilltop called Monde Shah, which was fifty or sixty miles away from uh, uh, east of Dunkirk. And we had one gun left. I wasn't a gunner in those days. I was a, I was gunner, gunnery officer's assistant. But I watched our last gun firing over open sights at the Germans who were down below, about a thousand yards away, I should say. And um, and then the order came that we were to destroy our, destroy our guns and make our way to Dunkirk, where the Navy would pick us up. So our last gun was destroyed by putting a shell, a shell up the breech and one down the muzzle and then and detonating it and blew the gun up. And then... We've come under very heavy fire, and I remember getting up onto the main road and seeing a truck come by, and Trevor Luff, a friend of mine, 
was said jump, and I jumped onto to it, and that was the last road out before being sealed off by the German army, and we made our our way until some measurements decided to pay us attention and came strafing the road and the road was blocked up with uh, refugees and of all kinds and sorts of descriptions and we just dived into the ditches and um, when they'd gone uh, we were left walking but then a section of of um, a, a section of French cavalry came by and they were leading quite a lot of horses and being an ex royal horse artillery man I, I signalled could I, could I ride one of the horses and they said yes so I, I jumped on a horse and my friend Bert Reed jumped on a, a horse as well and uh, we rode along with the uh, cavalry for about 20 miles, I suppose. And then they decided to switch off and go south. And we wanted to go continue going west and northwest. So we said thanks very much and handed back the reins. And we were left walking. But then I noticed there was, there was a nice uh, motorbike in a courtyard, and uh, I looked into. There was petrol in the tank, so I took the carburetor and started up. And it worked perfectly, so I said, "Jump on the pillion, Bert," and then we rode on for quite some time on this motorbike. But then we came across a crossroads that was coming under heavy enemy fire. But it was a bit intermittent. But I didn't like the look of, of, of crossing that crossroads because I'd read, I'd read a book uh, uh, where people had to do that sort of thing and it didn't end very nicely. So at any rate, I looked in the carburetor and it was nearly empty, so I said to Bert, we'll have to walk on from now. And so we did. We went across the open fields and I had a, a map, which was a print out of the Daily Mirror. And we did a bit of orienteering with this. And eventually we came to Dunkirk, which was in the evening. And we, you you didn't need a map to get to Dunkirk because the columns of smoke were going sky high and it was just a question of following that. And uh, by, by the time we got into Dunkirk, all the bombing had stopped because it was night time and we made our way down onto the beach and there we saw hundreds of bodies laying out with with them um, uh, with uh, uh, sh blankets over them so I really thought surely they aren't all dead and then suddenly uh, one, one of the blankets was 
pulled back and a voice said, what's the time, mate? It was uh, members of the Guards Brigade and, and they were having a, a good old doze. Uh, so we walked on and eventually came to the, the dunes. The next day, it was absolutely... We were trying to... to there were people queuing into queues to be taken off, but we were very unlucky. We couldn't get out, couldn't, couldn't be taken off, and it became more hazardous by the hour because um, the debris was so dense that uh, boats who had propellers daren't come in or the propellers would get enmeshed in the rubbish that was littering the surface of the sea so i said i said to uh, i said to my friend i said i said uh, i said i'll tell you what we're going to do we're going to build a raft to get to to ferry us out beyond this uh, 100 or 200 yards of rubbish and then we'll get picked up <clears throat> so he said okay so we set to work and we built a raft and nobody bothered to say what are you doing or anything and <clears throat> the problem was we didn't have nails or a hammer so most of it we had to t tie tie it together tie them together with ropes that we ropes that we found lying around so we built this raft and then we found it was so heavy we couldn't push it for love the money and it was about three or four yards uh, off the beat off the water so i said so i looked around and i saw under the uh, under the sea wall was a um, was a Brengan carrier, so I, it was about 250 yards away. So I went over to it, jumped in, pressed the key, and plop, it bursted to life right away, no problem. So I drove it back around, positioned it in front of the raft, we tied it on, and I said, now, I said, I said when I... When I go out, give me the yell when it's floating, and uh, and I'll cut cut the engine. So I drove the brown gun carrier into the water, and until I couldn't drive it any further, and it was, the water it went on for a long time, um, even though it was underwater, which was amazing, really. But uh, when it finally stopped, and, and I looked around. The, the raft was floating beautifully, so we cut it, cut it free, and we put all our put our clothes onto the raft, and then we pushed it out through the debris and paddled it out. Oh, I should say three or four hundred yards until we were clear of all the rubbish. But by that time, the water, be, the wind had been getting up and a swell began to break and uh, the raft being built out of spars with rope they all became loose and gradually they floated away and we were left swimming in the water and I swam around 
and the place was covered with oil from sunken ships and from their tanks. And then the next thing I knew, there was a, a, a big motorboat had pulled in and they were pulling me into the, into the boat. They pulled me into the boat and as soon as I was into the boat, they shot off out to a, a large mother boat that had been anchored about uh, about a kilometre off, out of range of the Messerschmitts and the, and the Stukas that were bombing at the time. And uh, I walked up the uh, slanting uh, bridge, uh, the walkway onto the ship and somebody gave me an overcoat and uh, that was how I left Dunkirk. What was it like getting home? Brilliant. It was marvellous. I, 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 uh, I, uh, I, I, I hadn't had any food for some time because uh, uh, food was a bit scarce to come by on, <laughs> and uh, so I, 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 uh, I uh, sort of uh, uh, sat down, and they brought me a lovely mug of navy cocoa, and that was one of the best drinks I've ever had in my life. It was gorgeous. I really was like nectar. And then the next thing I knew was somebody saying, pull on this rope. That uh, was pulling the anchors up and pulling the boats on, to, on because they, they were fearing of being sunk any moment by, by the planes coming over. So that's how I left Dunkirk. And, of course, I went to sleep. And the next thing I knew was it was... It, Margate, wasn't it? Yeah, at Margate, not Ramsgate, Margate. And what's your name? Edward Oates. How old are you, sir? 97. And what were you doing in, in uh, May and June of 1940? May and June. Waiting for a boat, I think. <laughs> the Old Testament. It is one of the most influential collections of texts ever created. And this month on The Ancients, we are exploring some of the Hebrew Bible's most well-known stories, people, objects, and kingdoms, and the influences that inspired them. From the Mesopotamian origins behind the well-known creation story of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood, to world-shaping prophets like Moses, sacred artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant, and the archaeology of Temple Mount. Stay tuned for new episodes of our Old Testament series out every Thursday this June, on the Ancients from History Hit. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You were with the BF. What unit were you in? I was in the 9th Army Field Workshop, REOC. And how long were you waiting in that perimeter before you got off the beach? It was five or six days, I think it was. I don't remember just exactly how long. All we had to do was looking for food. And what do you remember about those days? Not a lot, I've got all the photographs, so I, I, I see the photographs and that brings some of it back. Were you on the mole waiting to get evacuated or were you on the beach? On the beach at Bray Dunes and then we walked from Bray Dunes into Dunkirk eventually after a few days when we weren't getting away. And was it well organised or were things getting a little ragged by that stage? I don't know. I was so worried as far as I got off. And so in the end, did you, did you get off on a naval ship or one of the little ships? One of the little ships, yes. So did you, you wade it out to sea or how did it work? No, well, we walked into Dunkirk and got on, on the docks. So I didn't have to go in, wade into the sea. We did wade into the sea before. We never managed to get on anything. So we had to come back to the beach, but eventually, um, when we got into Dunkirk, we got on the boat. But I tell you what, my boots polished up ever so shiny because they'd been in the seawater <laughs> thoroughly wet for days. And how many of you were on one of these little boats? I don't know. Was it packed? Fairly, yes. He, he took as many as he could. Did you think, this is it, we must have lost the war, or did you think you'd be back in Europe soon to take on Hitler? I didn't think anything about it. I was worried about getting off. And what was it like getting home? It was all right. You must have been happy, though, seeing Kent. I was happy enough, yeah. On the crossing, was there any danger from German aircraft or or any of that? I was asleep. And when I woke up, it was grey, misty dawn, and we finished up in Folkestone. And that's all I remember of it. What did you do for the rest of the war? The Middle East. I was in army workshops, field workshops. What does it mean coming back here, seeing all these boats alongside today? Do you, do you love coming back and, and seeing these and meeting up with some of your old comrades? Yeah, if I see any of them, but there are not many of them left now. 
I think there's only me and George in our Dunkirk club that we're in. All the others are supporters. All hangers on. <laughs> so what's your name, sir? William Matthews, Bill for friends. Well, Bill, if I may, uh, what were you what were you doing at Dunkirk? Were you an infantryman? Infantryman. I was setting up in the sand hills. We come off the beach, went back in the sand hills at the side of the beach for safety. And why was that? Was it artillery or, or German air attacks that were the problem? It was the Stukas, and uh, then they could see us. So I, I had a stomach like a little white billiard ball, and uh, Nobby Clark beside me said, I told you not to upset him, he said, and they rocket down, they come straight down, and then as they turn, so they machine gun the beach. But there's been worse things than when, when we got there, I come from Brussels to get down there. And while we are in Brussels, we found some papers. If you waved them to somebody, they would take you prisoner, lay down your arms, and you go back. Because all the regiments have moved back, but they left a couple of platoons of guys to keep an eye on the people down there and report back. And the Warwickshire Regiment, there was 88 blokes. They went over with them and gave in. And our sergeant said, any use lot think of giving in it? He said, you've got to go through me. Anyway, we moved from Brussels across country to get to the seaside. And we found out afterwards that they executed the 88 Warwicks. Uh, and when we got back home and told them, oh, look, the war is over now. Don't want to worry about things like that. And so it's like we've been striped trousers, isn't it? So what was it like being under German air attack? Was, was Did you feel completely helpless? Yeah, we, we couldn't do anything. I, I had my face in the sand. And little, instead of having a stomach, it was like a billiard ball. Were you hungry as well and tired? Well, uh, two days we'd been on the road. And we had no food. And... Uh, then the Ben McCree, that's an all-a-man steamer, came in. And he came in the groin side. The groin side, the water was deep. But this side, the water went out about a mile. And uh, she backed into there. We got a border. And they grabbed you by your equipment and held you and sling you aboard. I woke up in Folkestone, and uh, I, I don't know where I was. I, I know there were, there were thousands of chaps there, and then big marquee, thousands of new Dixies. 
I only got two dinners, and I am. And when I finished those two, I cut the puddings and all. And when that was Saturday night, half past eight, and next minute somebody's kicking me, and it's a sergeant said on your feet. It was Sunday, half past twelve. <laughs> Slept out, out, oh sorry, out on the grass all night. And the regiment had gone down to uh, Somerset. When you were in Dunkirk hiding, how long were you hiding in those sand dunes in Dunkirk, waiting for a ride off that beach? Oh, day and a half. We, we were so disappointed in one, one, one place. We'd come along and we'd been told we were going to a place called Dunkirk. So you'll be all right, Seaport. We come round the corner and there was the Normandy ship blazing from stem to stern. We said we were here. We weren't. When we got near it, it, it was brick built. <laughs> it was a hotel. <laughs> so we give that the bounce and then we still carried on down the road. And you'd walked all retreating all the way. Were you were you disillusioned? Were you feeling down, or did you keep your spirits up? Oh no, uh, Clark and the rest of them, and honey, they um, come on, math, pick your feet up. And for two days we walked down the outside because we had to get from Brussels, but. We didn't know at the time that we were going the wrong way. The Germans had come in the Brussels and they were, were, we was in the palace. And a Frenchman come over, he said that the the Germans are coming through there. So we said, let's get out of it then. (laughs) There's no, no idea. They had tanks. There was... 31 of us and there was big tanks and I carried an anti-tank rifle uh, bullets that long and I'm supposed to lay out in the middle of the road and as the tank comes towards me line him up and then fire at him that's the the point of the gun. It wouldn't, there was a, a boat like this laying on its side, smoking all over everywhere. So the, the COE said, sink that bloody thing. And he fired. They ricocheted off. It bounced off. <laughs> yeah. He said, give me the gun. And he slung it. And at that moment, I was standing by Captain Ricketts, and he gave, there was a big bang, a couple of big bangs near us, and he went down, and I looked at him. When I went down, he got a wicked wound out here. So I grabbed him and told the other blokes, and they hauled him on his feet, and he got dirt all tufts of grass there and we can only 
imagine that it was a, a, a well, we don't know what it was really. And we took him to um, the base where they got all this. Gel they said, leave him with us, we'll take care of him. And we went back. And then afterwards, when I was at the Star and Garter, went up there to a do. He was standing over there. And I walked over, and he said, don't I know you? I said, yeah, I'm the bloke who, me and that two hours, are taking us to the hospital, and he's go over. But then, everybody moved out. So we didn't know what happened to him. And he was back in England then. And uh, there he was alive. You saved his life? No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, uh, somebody would have found him. And uh, What do you remember from those sand dunes? Was the, were there dead and wounded lying around in those sand dunes from the, from the air attacks? Oh, there's quite a lot... Uh, those air attacks, when those stuckers come down, straight down there, and when you look up, you can see the green bomb fall away, and you get deeper in the, in the dirt. I wish I was a mole, so I could dig oh, or a white billiard ball down here with the stomach. Cock, he said to me, we believe not upset this lot like we have. Because <laughs> then they, once they come out the dive, they machine gun. But they were doing the beach, most of the beach. But we was up the shelf part where the long grass was. And was it every man for himself or were men still obeying their officers and were still the military discipline? Oh, we did what the sergeant said. Captain uh, Lieutenant Brooks Fox was a lieutenant of our platoon. And whenever you did anything, he used to say, the sergeant and I, the sergeant 34, we're going to do so-and-so. So you, whatever the sergeant said, we did it. And how did you get off the beach? The... On, on the horizon, the, the water, there's a, a long groin, and one side of the groin, the water went out about six feet all the way out. Big boats couldn't get in. So I had hundreds of little boats coming in. But I didn't fancy wading out on me dress like, and uh, you can't run anywhere in the water. So the sergeant said, let's get back in the, on the top of the beach in the sand dunes with the long grass. And when they must have seen us, they dropped a couple, but they nowhere near us. And it just, it's just sand goes up in the air, terrific noise. Frightens the dad out, it does. You've got a gun like a white billiard ball, and I wish I was a mole. And Lee Carker, he turns around and says, We've upset him, mate. He said, We've been asked for this. 
And then, um, so when did you, well, how, which boat did you eventually manage to get off the beach on? Ben McCree. The Ben McCree. It's an Isle of Man uh, steamer. There's eight of them. And this was one of them. The plane was a bit noisy, sorry. So I can I ask that again, because the plane was a bit noisy. So what, what boat did you get off the beach on? Ben McCree. Ben my Cree. And after the war, I wrote to the Isle of Man's first name and said thank you very much. And they sent me a booklet. And first class stabs and all stuff like that. Yeah. So you got off on one of the little the little ships of Dunkirk? Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd say it was a little ship. It, it was big to me. And how were there guys packed in their standing room only? I, I don't know. I started climbing up the side, and then Matt leaned over, grabbed me by the equipment, heaved me in, and the next one. And I'll, on the deck I went, and uh, I woke up in Folkestone. <laughs> That's all, all I know of the crossing. We, we'd been on the road like, all the way from Brussels. We, we didn't, there was no food. And everything like that, we just kept going. And the, the sergeant, he kept us going. No, nobody ran or anything like that. Mind you, he used to walk up and down. He, he must have done it twice. <laughs> Yes, I did. But Brooke Fox... So he'd walk up and down the unit making sure everyone was... Yeah. And terrible barbers at Monte Casino. Brooke Fox was the first bloke killed. They, they took a, a unit out and uh, walked into a net trap. Yeah, that was Brooke Fox. He was a captain then. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day today. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so we're underway now. We're pottering along the River Thames on a nice sunny day in June. It's hard to imagine. You've taken us across the channel, though. I mean, it's a different challenge, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. Um, this is uh, proper pleasure boating. Um, a pr present company accepted, of course. Um, no, it's a beautiful day at Windsor, and uh, the water's flat. Uh, completely different to the experience of crossing the channel. Um, where uh, in a 26-foot boat it, uh, well, put it this way, we wouldn't do it for pleasure, probably, uh, only if we needed to. But what's interesting is every time one of us moves from one side of the boat to the other, the whole boat moves, so I don't quite know how that works with a load of soldiers on board in rough channel conditions. Yeah, indeed, and I don't think anybody would want to cross the channel with a load of soldiers on under any circumstances. Certainly uh, when Firefly was at Dunkirk, um, we had uh, a, an eyewitness account of the first thing that the skipper did, uh, having loaded the boat up with men, and there was only five or six on board for a shuttle run out to HMS Anthony. First thing he did was level them all up and uh, order them around and get them in the right place because uh, it just makes it incredibly uncomfortable. Um, you lean in and the boat doesn't go in a straight line and it's, uh, it's, it's not pleasant. Um, she's very, uh, very sensitive to the way she's loaded. I feel the happy history on our shoulders. Uh, 
hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favor to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favor, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. You can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history. Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.